The Cost of Courage, How the Tables Turn on Doctors. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Steve Tweet. Mr. Tweet is a medical investigative reporter with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in Pennsylvania. He wrote a series of articles titled The Cost of Courage, How the Tables Turn on Doctors. The series details a number of physicians who suffered from bad faith hospital peer review and the consequences they paid. Mr. Tweet, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you for inviting me. What is sham peer review? Sham peer review is is a popular term uh, that refers to basically unfair peer review, peer review process where a doctor is called into a hearing under the auspices of being disruptive when in fact the actual issue is that they have been too vocal or or too frequent a, an advocate for better patient care or in some cases it may be for uh, economic reasons. The term in fact has become so popular that it even has an entry in Wikipedia now. I always was somewhat hesitant to use the term too much. I didn't want to imply that uh, in the stories that peer review is in and of itself a bad thing. I think it, it plays a very important role in assuring quality care in hospitals. But the way it is currently set up, I think it certainly has the potential for misuse. And I think we found some pretty compelling instances where it, it was misused. How did you become interested in hospital peer review? It started with a, a single phone call from a very well-respected anesthesiologist here in Pennsylvania who was very concerned about uh, some things that had happened at her hospital. She had become very worried about some quality of care issues at her hospital, uh, specifically having to do with inadequate pre-surgical checkups of patients, uh, which in a couple of instances appear to have resulted in patient deaths. But when she brought these concerns to the hospital administration, rather than the administration administrators looking at the uh, substance of her complaint, they began investigating her and started writing her up, giving her evaluations, saying she was on. Un- cooperative. Walk us through a bad faith hospital peer review process. The process can vary from hospital to hospital to some degree because they they do have so much uh, authority on on how it's set up. But it was not at all uh, untypical for uh, physicians to tell me what would happen was they they would certainly sense that there was some tension or disagreement or personality conflict within the hospital staff but with sometimes with very little notice, they would receive a letter saying that uh, you are requested to attend a peer review hearing. They may get it on very short notice. They may have vague or no notion exactly of what the problem is until they show up at the hearing. They may or may not be allowed uh, legal representation. Some cases they were told that uh, they were intimidating nurses, but they wouldn't weren't told which nurses said it or when this incident supposedly took place. Quite often, the physicians are not allowed to question their accusers, and and it also was not unusual that some of the physicians who actually were involved in accusing them were also sitting on the panel deciding what would happen uh, with the accusations against them. Who typically does sit on a peer review committee panel? The upper echelon of the medical staff, you know, the chief of staff, perhaps uh, some of the non-clinical administrators. Usually, they also like to have physicians who are of the same specialty, 
which uh, can also cause problems because you may be, uh, that may mean it's uh, someone who is uh, in direct competition. How often does this happen? Uh, the short answer is I don't know. Uh, I did find one study, well, it was a survey of emergency room physicians, and, you know, it was a fairly small study, but uh, 23% said that they felt that there had been some ramifications for them speaking up for patient care. I think that frequency may not be so critical because what I found over and over again is it really only takes one case. Uh, if all you had, all a hospital would have to do was make an example of one physician and the message got out to the rest of the staff. Don't whistleblower laws protect physicians? Uh, really, they don't uh, because the hospitals have so much authority in terms of handling who gets credentials, who has admitting privileges, and courts typically do not want to get involved in that process. What about due process? Yes, that's a uh, wonderful question. Uh, I think that, I mean, to me what I see the the problem of of, uh, uh, unfair peer review is that there really isn't any sort of due process involved from the physician's perspective. They're really at a, a major disadvantage here. This is almost strikes me as a, a legal issue that has huge public health implications uh, because the, the physician has so little power or so little standing to be able to confront and refute charges made against him. Why would a hospital do this? Well, there could be a variety of reasons. It could be, you know, it could be for economic reasons. It could be personality conflicts. But the, the cases I, I particularly zeroed in on uh, were instances where a physician from the hospital's perspective was, you know, just became too vocal and it became a matter of trying to keep things quiet, trying to keep things off the radar. We don't want to hear about problems. We want to, you know, just keep it a smooth operation. Some instances, physicians were concerned about the practices, clinical practice and competence of a colleague, uh, you know, and of course bringing that out is, raises all sorts of tensions and the hospitals just don't want to deal with that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Mr. Steve Tweet, medical investigative reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in Pennsylvania, discussing his series on bad faith hospital peer review. Mr. Tweet, does this occur more in larger hospitals? We were able to find examples of this in small community hospitals as well as hospitals attached to major Ivy League schools. But it manifests itself somewhat differently in, the, in each setting. Uh, when you're talking about a, a major hospital, I think the, the problem for the physician is that he's going up against a multi-million dollar institution which has unlimited, virtually unlimited resources. And uh, whereas in the community setting, again, because you're going to have uh, specialists in the same area on the sitting on the peer review, you may be sitting across your competitor or the, the facing a panel that, that includes people who who are making the accusations against you. It's it's like the prosecutor and judge all enrolled in one. Describe the feedback you've received from doctors because of the series of articles you wrote. Even though it's been a, some period of time since the series first ran, I still get emails pretty consistently. I would say at least once a couple of months, uh, and at first it was dozens from as far away as Uruguay, although I don't know how American laws would apply down there. But So that tells me that this is happening still with some frequency across the U.S. And typically, the physicians who contact me, they, they've seen the stories on 
uh, on the internet, and the feeling was I thought I was the only one. I thought I had been singled out, and and when in fact, quite often these sorts of proceedings follow a, a very similar uh, template. Give us an example of one of the more egregious cases of hospital peer review that your investigation revealed. There were several, and each each kind of had its own kind of special characteristics. Uh, one I found particularly compelling involved uh, Dr. Tommy Weeders in South Carolina, who's a vascular surgeon. And he just feels very, very strongly that he needs to be the advocate for his patient, the strongest advocate for his patients, which to me says this is the doctor I'd want to have. But when there were some changes at the hospital, change in ownership, he started to notice some things were slipping or, you know, he'd give orders, medical orders, test orders, and they weren't being followed up. Mistakes were being made, the general cleanliness of the hospital. And every time this would happen, he would tell somebody, this is not right, we need to do something, or he'd fill out a report. The accusations he made were later backed up both by state and federal inspectors. But again, instead of addressing his concerns, he became the target. He was told he was disruptive. Uh, the hospital eventually were, uh, said that there were, you know, cited 17 separate instances where he had been, quote-unquote, disruptive. And finally, they told him he had to leave the hospital. And what happened to him? Do you know? Uh, well, among other things, because he was uh, suspended for 30 days, he ended up uh, being listed in the National Practitioner Data Bank. Uh, which is a, a, a particularly troublesome development for uh, any physician because once you're in the data bank, anytime you apply for privileges at any hospital, uh, that hospital is required to check the data bank, and there you have this black mark in your file, which he found made it very, very difficult for him to find work anywhere else. Uh, and when he applied to a different state, uh, even when they would accept him, they said, well, you know, you're going to be on probation for a year or you need to be follow a mentoring program you know, something along that line. It it can really destroy uh, a physician's career. What type of information did the hospital list in that databank? They would just say that he was listed for unprofessional conduct or for being disruptive. The terms can be very vague, and I've seen a couple of the listings in the databank for some physicians who are willing to share it with me. And it's all very one-sided from the hospital standpoint. Uh, in one instance, a, a doctor in the San Francisco area actually sued, and he was able to prevail in uh, U.S. District that ruled in his favor, saying that he had his First Amendment rights for speaking out had been violated, but he's still in the databank because only the reporting institution can withdraw that listing. So that's still trailing him uh, where he goes whenever he applies for work, uh, even though the courts said he was right. How can doctors protect themselves? It's not so much a legal matter, I think, as a matter of conscience. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, probably thinking through what you can live with and what you can't live with. And when you start seeing signs that, you know, that feedback in terms of verbalizing uh, patient care concerns is not welcome, you need to decide, you know, am I going to fight this uh, for my patient's sake or do I just need to go somewhere else? The physicians I interviewed were, in my eyes, heroic people, uh, you know, who are willing to risk everything to stand up for their patients. But I had more than one physician tell me afterwards, if I had it to do over again, I probably wouldn't. Did any physician say, I would have done it differently by getting counsel or taking certain steps or advantages of certain resources? They're really hampered in that regard because physicians, you know, when they thought they were clearly being unfairly targeted, 
tried to file suit, and typically the courts would say, we're not going to get involved until these administrative proceedings within the hospital are resolved. And uh, the difficulty with that is that, you know, the peer review process, the hearings, setting up the hearings, uh, coming to a ruling, some, in some cases this has taken many months or even years. And meanwhile, the physician is unable to practice, and, uh, you know, their, their patient case and their practice just withers. How can doctors learn more about this issue? Well, there are three groups out there that have been uh, very active looking at this and advocating for physicians who are unfairly targeted. Uh, one is the Semmelweis Society. That's been around the longest. Another is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And uh, there's a third group called the Center for Peer Review Justice. Uh, they each have websites, uh, and people can you know, go to those, and, and uh, they have links to case backlog of cases and uh, you know, some general advice on how to handle these situations. I want to thank Steve Tweed, who has been our guest today discussing Bad Faith Hospital Peer Review. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.